Welcome back, Warriors. I'm Amy. And I'm Eden. And on today's episode, we have the president, Elsa Nunez. Go Warriors! Go Warriors! Welcome to the podcast! We're so happy to have you on. And I'm honored to be on. Thank you to the two of you for inviting me. Of course, we've been bragging. You are the biggest name that we've had on the podcast to date. So this is a big day for us. And thank you for coming on. We know you're so busy. (laughs) You do a lot for higher education in Connecticut. So I know you're very, very busy. Yeah, but my students come first. So <laughs> oh, this we is important. You. This is important Definitely. to be here. So I'm going to start us off here with our first question. So we've been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic for more than two years, if you can't believe it. It's already been this long. So how well do you think that the campus community has held up? That's such a good question. It's been a long two years. So the first point that I want to make is how amazing our students are, because financially, we couldn't be in the place that we are today, which is a positive fund balance without the participation of our students for the last two years, particularly not just in enrollments, but in the dorms. And so the students came and it was compromised for them. You know, they weren't socializing the same way. They didn't know what we were going to do for socializing. And we had some events, remember, most of it was online at the beginning, it was scary. But the students never, ever complained in mass. Occasionally, one student would express a complaint, mm-hmm. which they are entitled to. And most of the time, they were right. So we were able to fix things as we went along. But the students just wanted to be on campus, and they wanted to continue their education. And I respected that. And that's why I fought very hard with the students to make sure that we were still going strong and not just online, because a lot mm-hmm. of my students didn't want online. They wanted some online, a little bit of that, but they wanted mostly face-to-face. So we were able to offer the hybrid courses and have some activities in the dormitories. The faculty was terrific. The faculty, you know, they were afraid. They were afraid for themselves and their families and their students. And so the faculty cautiously agreed to come back to the hybrid Uh, format. At first, we negotiated what that would look like. They participated in the discussions. We participated in the discussions. And at the end, I think it was much better for everyone because the faculty was so supportive of the students coming back on campus. The staff, you had to have staff in the, you know, in the dorms. They were there all the time. The RAs and the hall directors were fantastic. You had to have student activities people around. You had to have the advisors, and the staff was fabulous. They knew. They worked from home some, but many of them would, would come on campus. Your psychological advisors, remember, they were they were seeing students through telehealth. Yes. They were here, at, you know, here meaning they were present in terms of providing counseling services to the students. So all I can say is that the last two years were so challenging. But if I didn't have the cooperation of the students, the faculty, and the staff, we would never have made it through these two years in the way that we did. And that means that the budget is is good at this point. Yeah, I mean, I started my semester here fall 2021. Uh. (laughs) And I did not experience the hybrid you know, functioning. Even in high school, I decided to stay home. I thought it was a lot easier on my mental health. But looking forward with these next few semesters and us not really knowing what's going to happen with COVID, what are your own predictions? Well, we have a lot of uh, good ideas about the future. As of Monday, April 4th, no masks, no social distancing, no testing. It's all over. Now, Mm -hmm. there's always a threat that this new BA2 will come and 
if that happens, if we have another epidemic type situation, we will then meet with the students, faculty, and staff and decide what to do at that point. But so far, we think that everybody's vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated and they have their boosters. So it's safe enough to now pull off the masks, um, make sure that everybody uh, participates till the end of the semester in a healthy way, a safe way. And then next semester is to be completely uh, back to normal. So next, starting next week, you can socialize in the dorms like you used to. And if you're, if you never have done it, it's a lot of fun. Um, they go in each other's rooms and they have mm -hmm. all kinds of uh, nice yes. events and they go to the student center and have events. So we're going to go back to normal as of April 4th. And I think that's everybody's mm -hmm. eager to do that and looking forward to it. I'm so glad you said that because I started fall of 2019 and I graduate in May. So I did the Eastern and three plan. So almost all of my college experience has been in the pandemic, which is crazy to believe. Wow. So I am personally very excited to go back to normal because same thing. I'm a resident assistant in Burnap and just seeing all my residents come together at programs, be able to see the smiles. Yeah. Like, that's my big yeah. thing. Like With I no get to mask. see your faces yeah. right now. Yeah. Like for me, like I like being able to see people's smiles. Yeah. Like yeah. that means a lot. So I don't recognize a lot of people with their masks on. They'll often say President Nunez, hi. And I'll, I'll have to look twice. <laughs> because with the mask, you know, it covers such a big part of your face right. that I don't recognize people. The other thing is the first commencement uh, in COVID-19, we had it virtual and it broke my heart. It wasn't the same. You know, we had the YouTube video and it was okay. And then in 20, we, we were able to do it outside. And what we did had a, a commencement for 19. Yes. So we had the regular commencement for, for the class of 20, I think it was. We had it face-to-face -face here on campus, and yes. people were happy. They were joyous. And then on Sunday, that was on Saturday, on Sunday we asked the class from the year before to come, and a lot of people mm -hmm. came. They we had did. about 500 students out of the graduating class who came for that commencement. Oh. They really wanted a real commencement. <laughs> they really did. I work at the bookstore as well, and I worked at the last commencement getting people their caps and gowns, and you could just see the joy in their faces knowing that they're yeah. having a real graduation. And I know why I'm excited. It is the exciting. The countdown is real. I did my senior portraits yesterday, put on the cap and gown the whole nine. I, it's it's, it's exciting. Feel real. Yeah, and it you'll be really at the Excel is. Center. We'll be celebrating. I'm so thrilled. I, I can't even get into it because <laughs> the senioritis, it's, it's here. But my next question, so obviously Eastern is Connecticut's public liberal arts college. What do you hope our students learn while they are here? Well, you know, it's interesting. That's such a good question. You have the Fortune 500 companies. You know, those are mm -hmm. the biggest and the elite companies in the country. And their, their CEOs, their leaders always say, you know what we need? We need people who can think critically, be creative, mm -hmm. think systematically, good logic skills, speak clearly, write well. The basic critical thinking skills are at the core. We can teach them whatever the, the company, you know, uh, deems is appropriate to be taught for that particular, you know, uh, area that the company is involved in, but we can't teach them how to think critically. So in my mind, the LAC, which is undergoing a revision right now yes. by our faculty for the last three years, they've been debating how to strengthen change and strengthen the LAC. And I think the faculty has been very dutiful and successful in coming up with a framework that's going to be better for the students. So unlike when I was in school, you had a distribution requirement, which was you took courses in your freshman and, mm -hmm. and sophomore year, 
that were required, and then you went on junior and senior to your major. At Eastern, the LAC is incorporated for four years. Right. So what happens is you're supposed to be developing your liberal arts learning outcomes for those four years. And those learning outcomes, the faculty have identified as being critical to their development while they're undergraduate students here. And critical thinking is at the top of that list. Um, uh, quantitative reasoning also. And so what we want students to do is to be able to problem solve when they get a job. When somebody gives them a problem or, or a challenge that they can say, well, you know, you can do it these ways or you could do it these, these, this way. And then they listen to somebody who's, you know, partnering with them at the job, you know, a peer. And they say, well, I'm not sure about that. And they actually are listening to the other person because good mm-hmm. listening skills are important. And so that they understand that good ideas come from uh, input, not just output. Mm-hmm. It isn't right. just what you think. It's collaborating Collaboration mm-hmm. is important and you understanding how your ideas can be improved. And you, you do that by listening to other people who are critiquing your ideas. Right. And so I think that the most important thing we can do at Eastern is make sure that the students have these skills. So no matter what major they're in, they have this basic infrastructure of um, skills that are critical. I think the best example I can give you and our listening audience is when I go to the accounting banquet, I I say to the students, we don't graduate accountants at Eastern. And they look at me funny because they're all (laughs) right, kind of their majors accounting. I said, we graduate liberally educated people who happen to be accountants. And you can discuss the conflict in the Middle East. You can discuss the role of religion in this country. You can talk Mm -hmm. about the uh, economic gap between the poor and the rich. You can discuss all these issues and you're a great accountant. And that means that your boss is going to find you to be not only an interesting person, but a person who intellectually is quite strong. And that's that's what we expect from a liberal arts education at Eastern. And don't forget, we're Connecticut's only public liberal arts college. Very important. I'm glad you added that point. And I think it's definitely made me a more well-rounded student and just person as a whole. And I think that's really one of the big things as to why I picked Eastern ultimately, because I had applied to other schools. And I was like, I don't know, they just don't feel right to me. But Eastern just, again, it's that education as well as the communication department, because it is wonderful. (laughs) But it really does make you a better person. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a recent communications major. Um, I switched from psychology to communications, and I'm also currently double majoring with theater. So well, that's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this university really gave me the opportunity to try new things and see what I enjoy. I think my parents really stressed having a college education, not just because of a degree, but also the experiences that we can have and grow from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, at 18, do you really know what you want to be for the rest of your life? I mean, that's (laughs) really, it's, it's a hard burden for students. Sometimes their families expect them to know you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a teacher, and Mm -hmm. they're not really sure. So this idea of exposing students to different disciplines in the early years uh, so mm-hmm. that they can see what does it mean to be a psychologist? What does it mean to be an economist? What does it mean to be, a, a, you know, a, a person who has a business background? Um, because you may not want to be an accountant and sit behind a desk all the time. You think your parents may want you to be an accountant, but maybe you don't. So I think it is important to have that exposure. And then that you can test the waters and see what you're good at also, right? Mm, yeah. Because all of us have gifts and if we can connect your gifts to a major, that's a home run for us. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, this is my first time meeting you. 
And already hearing, you know, what you're saying and just your energy, I can tell you're a very driven person. And <laughs> I'm interested in knowing what were your role models or who are your role models currently? That's a very good question. I come from a Puerto Rican family who immigrated mm -hmm. to this country, my father, for a job. There were no jobs in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had just been under Operation Bootstrap by the United States, and it was turning it from an agricultural society to an industrial society. My father came from a farming family, so that meant that the farming jobs were all going away. You know, they were diminished, and these new jobs were being created. He had served in the American Army, so he knew a little bit of English, and he was scared that if he stayed in Puerto Rico, he would never be able to provide for his family. So he immigrated here by himself, and many, many years later, they lived in a in the town where I was born called St. Sebastian, San Sebastian in mm -hmm. Puerto Rico. And I was walking with my father. I think I may have been in my 40s, late 40s. And we were walking around the plaza, just taking a little stroll together. I, I was the first, I'm the firstborn. So, you know, I was very <laughs> close to my father. And a man came running up to us and said, I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something. And oh. he was a little manic, and I got scared. And I said, I wonder what he wants. And my father said, oh, it's Luis. And, and he came up, and he said, I want to tell you something about your father. And I thought it was going to be, like, something horrible. And, <laughs> and I got a little bit, like I said, a little bit frightened. And then he said, I lent five men $60 each to go to the United States because he was wealthy mm. in those days. Right. And the only man who paid me back was your father. Wow. Oh, wow. So my father, when he came to this country, he would send him $2, $5, whatever he could until he paid the debt of $60. And it made me so wow. proud of my father. Oh. And my father just stood there and smiled. He said, oh, Lisa, <laughs> you didn't have to tell her that. <laughs> but I, but so that's how my family came. We were poor. And my mother's mother was named Ramona. And mm -hmm. there's a place in Puerto Rico, it doesn't exist today because there was no projects. You know what projects are, mm -hmm. low-income housing. Uh, there was no low-income housing. And what people did in Puerto Rico, especially in San Juan, was they would go to a section called the mud flats where the ocean came mm -hmm. in, but it was muddy, you know. Okay. Yeah. And they would build, put stakes into that mud and then... Mm -hmm. On top of those stakes, they would build platforms. So it would go out just like a pier, right? You right. know what a pier mm -hmm. looks like. Well, they would build these piers. I'm going to call them piers for the podcast. Out into the ocean. <laughs> and people used to urinate and defecate oh. into mm -hmm. the ocean because there were no toilets, nothing. They were poor people. Right. And then each person would build like a like a room, maybe three quarters of the room we're in now. So I would mm -hmm. say something like eight by eight. And you would put a little stove in the corner. You would put um, maybe your dishes in a little rack. And then there were mats that everybody slept, not beds, mats. And you would roll up the mats mm -hmm. in the morning. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother, her husband left her with eight children. So she lived wow. in that hut with, mm -hmm. with eight children. My mother was one of them. Mm -hmm. So we used to visit my grandmother. And I always say that the best meals I've had in my life I had there because <laughs> she would grow, she would raise chickens yes. and she would make me fresh chicken soup. And then she would take oh, the wow. eggs and make white meringue and put sugar oh. in it. Have you ever eaten mm -hmm. stiff no. meringue, like on top of a lemon meringue pie? They're that delicious. meringue that's on top? Oh. Mm -hmm. I'm missing out. Yeah. <laughs> so she would give us a big bowl of meringue for dessert, you know, with the sugar. And we had this great chicken soup. And I came to realize that 
out of poverty, she made a wonderful meal that she loved her family and she was so resourceful and she never complained about her condition. She only said, I want to be a good mother. I want my kids to have better a better life than I have. And she would encourage them, you know, to do that. And so my grandmother became my number one role model in my life. Because if you can come out of that and not be mad, angry, and bitter, you're a special person. And I think all of us face adversity, but not all of us mm-hmm. come out of it saying, well, you know what, I survived it and it's, it is what it is and I can have a good life. She, she saw the glass half full. And so I got that gift from her. Second role model that I had when I went to college, as I said, I was a English was not my first language. I went to high school. I was a good high school student, but I didn't read all the books that my peers read. So when I went into English 100 at Montclair State University, which is just it's a state university like like Eastern is, and I heard the kids in my English class, my peers talking about the readings, I wanted to go home. I wanted to cry. I said, I don't belong here. They sounded so intelligent and so well-read, and they were connecting this great work of literature to this or this poem to this, this writer to that. I couldn't do any of that. I mean, I had read, but I didn't have the sophisticated uh, analysis that they they could do. I didn't have that in my head. I didn't have the training, and so I got scared. And then the professor gave an assignment, and I got my assignment back. And to the listening audience, I'm holding up a piece of paper. You can't see it, but it was full of red marks. And it just, it just was full of red marks. He, he just, you know, correct. This was Dr. McGee, my English professor. And at the bottom, he wrote, I need to see you in my office. And I just took it and folded it and put it in my pocketbook. I was so embarrassed that I got this horrible, I didn't look at the other students. Professor McGee was a war veteran and he was in a wheelchair. He was disabled, but he was a, a great scholar. So I went to his office And he said, Elsa, you're going to come to my office every single time I have office hours. And I sat diagonally next to him. And he would be reading or writing, and I would, he would tell me, correct your paper. So Mm -hmm. I would be correcting it. And he said, and if you have a question, you can ask me. But I would write, and then I would ask him. He would answer it, and then I would write. And then he would read what I wrote, and then he said, not good enough, write it again. And he would, and I would, and I did that for an entire semester. And I ended up with a B, which I think is such an honorable grade. I I worked so hard for that B, but he was so kind to me, so kind. He could have said, listen, madam, you don't have it. You know, you don't belong here. You don't fit in. Uh, I'm not going to waste my time on you. He could have said anything, and he didn't. What he said was, you're basically very smart, but you need to improve your writing. And he gave me the, I'm a wonderful writer today, and um, it's been a great skill every job I've had, mm-hmm. and I owe him that. And he became my mentor and my role model because I tried to be kind to every. I can't always reach his level you know, because he was an amazing man. But I strive for that because I think as human beings, we have to be kinder to each other because there's people walking around with a lot of hurt, with a lot of deficits, with a lot of issues that they don't talk about. And so sometimes they just need somebody to be kind to them, not somebody to chop their head off or scream at them or tell them how bad they are. And so he became my second role model. And what I regret is I never went back to tell him how much I loved him and how much he did for me. And I, by the time I grew up and matured and I said I should go, he was, he had passed away, but I wish I had said to him what you did for me, he transformed my life. 
I want to thank you for sharing that. It's, that was beautiful. It's very touching, especially for your first role model, both of my parents coming from Puerto Rico, coming here at very young ages. I was talking to my mom about this, and she informed me that my great-grandmother, who had 10 children in Puerto Rico, came here to Connecticut and settled down. My grandfather worked in New Jersey. He was a fruit picker, and uh, their life was very hectic. My dad uh, lived in Waterbury, and uh, he also, you know, English was not his first language. So uh, he struggled during elementary school where simple things like asking, you know, can I use the bathroom, was not working out. <laughs> <laughs> His teachers are having a hard time. And you, you talk about adversity, and as I was thinking about questions that I would want to ask, one of them being, you know, how do you face adversity? How do you go through challenges? I think sometimes... The only option for people who face adversity is going through it. There's no way to go back, but that can only make you stronger. Yeah. Thank and the, the audience has to remember that adversity comes in different forms. It could be it's that true. your parents got divorced mm-hmm. and you went through a tough period as a young person. It could be that you have a, a sibling who has a disability mm-hmm. and that and there was a lot of adversity in the family caring for that sibling. It could be that your father lost his job and never got back to a good place. Mm -hmm. It could be that your mother has a mental health issue. I mean, it's the world is full of things that people don't talk about that Mm -hmm. they face adversity. And how you handle it is really important because it's hard. It's hard to come out of an adverse situation not angry and bitter Mm -hmm. and say, why me? You know, why couldn't it have been somebody else? But why, why did life give me this deck of cards, right? Or this, this set of cards. What, why? And instead of that, just saying, you know what, from that adverse adversity, I came out of it. And yes, I suffered, but, but from that suffering, I was a, I'm stronger. I think some form of adversity, I don't mean that people should have a, like, have a horrible life, but it teaches you strength and you need that because life is about failure. Yep. You're not mm-hmm. going to succeed at everything. People come out, you know, with this notion that everything is successful and there's a lot of failure in life you may not get the job you want you may not get the grades you want you may not Mm -hmm. live in the place you want to live I mean if life is full of disappointments and so how you manage those disappointments will add to the quality of your life and I think like your grandmother Mm -hmm. your great-grandmother and Mm -hmm. my grandmother they were able to say you know this is what the situation is and I'll live it the best that I can and there's a lot of happiness in my family. There's no money, but there was happiness. Mm-hmm. She, the, they, they found happiness in raising their children and pride in raising their children and, and having a family structure. So I think uh, to the audience, listening audience, I would say, uh, you, you got to think about that deeply when you're in an adverse situation and say, how am I going to extrapolate myself from this and go on with my life? Because it's so easy to give up after an adverse situation. You get an F mm-hmm. in a course or a D in a course and you think life's over and it's not. You have something tough to tell your parents, you know, and you think that that, no, you have to tell them whatever it is that you want to tell them in a way that's you find appropriate and your parents will understand at some point. And if they don't, you know, you still have the right to tell them. I just believe that as you grow up, the way you manage adversity and the way you help your friends manage adversity is also mm-hmm, important yes. because you may not be going through it, but a friend might. And so to be a good listener, you don't have to solve their problems because you can't, but right. to just to listen, be there to listen to them when they want to talk about it. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent point. I was going to say, as an RA, like, sometimes residents come to me, and it's like, I unfortunately can't help you with it. Or I can give you advice, I can give suggestions, but ultimately you are the one that has to handle it. So I think that's beautiful advice. So I am going to jump gears here because I do have a big question because obviously, you know, we're talking about adversity and obstacles in life. And obviously, you know, you've had to work to get to where you are now. So you're in your 16th year as Eastern's president. What are you most proud of during your time as our president? That's such a hard question. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I want to tell the audience I was 20 when I started, so I'm only 36. (laughs) Which, of course, is not true. (laughs) But uh, it's been, it's gone fast. Mm -hmm. The 16 years have gone fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was, there's something called the American Council on Education in Washington. It's It's a nonprofit. And they train, basically offer training for future college presidents. So I took that training when I was in my late 30s. And I was a faculty member. I taught English. And they wanted to know if some faculty members had an interest in administration. So you would go through that training for a year. And sometimes you did at the end say, I want to be an administrator. And sometimes you said, no, I don't want to do it. I want to stay faculty. And I decided I wanted to be an administrator. And one of the sessions that they gave in that year was a session on institutional fit. And what they tried to tell you was that you can't be president of every school in the country. Like, I could never be president of Yale or Harvard Mm. because I don't have a fancy pedigree in terms of where I went to school. If I had gone to Yale or Harvard as an undergraduate and graduate, I would stand a chance and done research, I would stand a chance to be... But in higher education, the kind of institution you lead is in the sector. So once you're in a sector, you can't jump from sector to sector. You know, you pretty Mm. much, I'm in the public sector and I'm very happy, but Mm. to be here. So this session on institutional fit made me think of where would I be happy as a president? So I'm not going to apply to community colleges. I've never taught in a community college. I'm Mm. not going to apply to research ones. I've never taught in a research one like UConn, but Mm. I went to a state school, right? Right. I taught at a state school. I was a faculty member at a state school. Where should I be? A state state school, school, (laughs) right? That was my fit. And it took me a while to narrow down what kind of school. I taught at a liberal arts college. So coming here as Connecticut's only liberal arts college felt fine. It was the best decision I ever made in my life to come to Eastern. I feel like I won the lottery. It's a fantastic, fantastic institution. Great faculty, great students, great staff. And I fit. I really fit. Mm -hmm. So it's to your question about what am I most proud of, I believe that because I fit here and I felt very comfortable around my faculty. So when my faculty complained about the load that they taught four courses in the fall and four courses in the spring, I said, it is a big load. I taught the same load. Mm-hmm. For, if I hadn't done that experience, I wouldn't have no empathy, no right. support for my faculty. I understand what it is to teach for for it's it's very mm-hmm. demanding and to do research. My faculty does applied research all the time. Some of them do basic research, but the, the idea of leading an institution where you feel comfortable in your skin, you don't have. I don't worry about well, what is she going to think of me, or what is he going to think of me, or what? It just it, I feel so at home here. So it was easy to lead. So I think that the, uh, I mean, when you look at, when I started, one of the big goals that I had for myself was that Eastern was going to be recognized by U.S. News and World Report. Up until that Mm -hmm. point, we, we were very low ranked or hardly ranked. Today, we're ranked number one in New England, right? 
how sure does, are. <laughs> how does Eastern, Little Eastern, get to be ranked number one in New England, right? Mm-hmm. I worked for 16 years on that with the faculty <laughs> and the staff, and here we are today. So I'm very proud of that. But I had this aha moment one day when I was thinking about that, and I said, when my children put me into the ground, when I take my last breath and they bury me, do I really want them to say, well, my mom made Eastern the number one college in New England? Is that what I want my children to remember me by? No, maybe the people here at Eastern will remember me by that, some people. But what do I want my children to remember me by? And that's when I started this discussion with the faculty about being an elite institution that's not elitist. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're elite, but we're not elitist. What that means is we rank number one, but we have special mechanisms to bring people from modest backgrounds into Easter. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to be remembered by. And that's my greatest accomplishment, I think, that I was able to raise the academic standards, be number one, but never lock the door to people who just didn't mm-hmm. make it, the cut. So we have high, very high standards for admission, but we have the, um, you, you know about the special programs we have, mm-hmm. step cap in the summer right. where they go to mm-hmm. summer school for six weeks and then they show that they can do the work and then they're admitted in mm-hmm. September. We get students that way. We have special programs with uh, Hartford Promise, with uh, New Haven mm-hmm. Promise, with Hartford mm-hmm. Youth Scholars, where we they, they, they give the students the supports that they need. They may not be at the level, and then we accept them with that support. So I think that this idea that we're public, that's the most important word in our, in our um, title. We're a public mm-hmm. liberal arts college, means that it doesn't matter if your mother cleans toilets, if your father's in jail, if your mother is schizophrenic, you know, if your father never, whatever happened in your life, it doesn't matter. You have the right to a first-class education. Yes. And you can get that at Eastern because the doors are open to everyone who meets the, the standard. And if you don't meet the standard, we have, we can admit you if you show you have potential and that you can work hard. If you can't work hard, we don't want you. But if you work hard, we want you. And I think that's my biggest accomplishment. I didn't think I could do that. I thought I had to have be number one and the standards would be high. And then, mm-hmm. but then I got scared. What does that mean to, to, to me personally, a woman of color? What does that mean that I'm not going to help anybody get in here? Mm-hmm. They, they have to earn it because right. every seat is earned by a student. You, both of you earn the right to sit in the seat that you're sitting in because mm-hmm. it's a meritocracy. We don't have legacy uh, admissions at Eastern. I don't give seats away to the you know, children mm-hmm. of, of donors. We don't have that here, so we don't have to worry. But we do want students to have drive, initiative, mm-hmm. and, and grit. So all of that to say, to answer your question, that I think it is a wonderful institution because the faculty, the staff, and the students have said that those are important values. Yes, we should be elite, but we should not be elitist. Beautifully said. So... Uh- I did have a little closing comment. I think when Eden and I were reflecting on our questions and last episode we had mentioned that you are the first Latina president here at Eastern and that is a very big deal. However, I had a moment to myself reflecting and figuring out what questions I would want to ask you, how I could highlight that in my own way. And I realized you are not just exceptional because you are the exception. You are exceptional for what you bring to the table for the fact that you are opening these doors. I mean, I always look at the people who came before me, um, my parents, their parents, so on and so forth. 
I would not be here today if it wasn't for them and, you know, everyone else who really fought for equality. So I, I honestly, I wanted to thank you and just tell you how much I appreciate your presence on campus. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. And I, and, and I believe fundamentally that Americans are good people. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, we're going through this struggle right now, mm-hmm. but I don't believe uh, fundamentally that they're bad people. And I think mm-hmm. having conversations about issues of equity, diversity, issues of climate change, all the issues that are dividing us, uh, I think we could get to a better place as a country because it is a wonderful country and it, it, we, are, we are all Americans first. And I think that that's really important to, to share your perspectives with us with all students, because fundamentally, I think we all are giving. You're giving, you're giving, Mm -hmm. you're going to continue to give in your jobs, and that's what makes the country so strong. Well, that's wonderful. Again, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. My pleasure. (laughs) We've been so excited gushing over this for weeks, because we got you booked a couple weeks ago, and we've been talking about as we get closer and closer, and now that it's finally here, it was so nice Mm -hmm. getting to chat with you this morning. You're welcome, and I do want to say to the audience that these two women are the hottest thing in town. Everybody talks about the podcast. Somebody said to me, do you know about Eastern's podcast? And I said, yes, I know about Eastern's (laughs) podcast. And so thank you to the two of you, because you are uh, mm-hmm. innovators, right? We had never had this at Eastern, and we were behind on social media. We were trying to catch mm. up, so thank you to the <laughs> two of you for um, using all your liberal arts skills to get <laughs> us to this place. Well, I'm glad we've been provided with them and we get to yes. use them each and every day and in every episode. So, mm-hmm. again, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Quickly going to wrap things up here. Thanks for tuning into the What's Up Warriors podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What's Up Warriors podcast. Mm-hmm. We're on Apple, Spotify, <laughs> Pandora, iHeart. Tune in. You name it, we're there. We're on every platform that you can think of. Again, President Nunez, thank you so much for coming You're on quite this week's Thank Thanks, everybody. And this has been What's, What's Up, Warriors? Warriors? Thank <laughs> you.